I wanted to clarify something. Um, I think sometimes when we, we have a revival or we have a conference or a series of services, we, we might start out uh, by thinking that, that, that we really we are in need of something. That we are in need of God doing something. And that's very much true. Uh, we desperately need God to revive our hearts, to revive them afresh and anew. We, we need the power of God to fall on our community and on our nation because there is a desperate need for that. But I, I think I would be remiss if I didn't also point out that I think this weekend is an opportunity for us to rejoice in what God is already doing. That God is already working and moving in the hearts and lives of all of us. He is moving and working in our community. And so we rejoice in what He's doing. But I think, or I hope, that you come to this weekend with a great expectation of what he is going to do. Uh, because I'm excited, but I'm hoping that we are more excited. So, with that said, I want us to look at Isaiah 55. My name is Michael Pardue. I, uh, many of you are our guests this evening. I uh, see that in the, in the crowd. Uh, we are glad that you're here. Um, uh, I've been here a few weeks and didn't really think that I needed to get someone to get up and introduce me. Uh, that seemed a little out of place. Uh, so I'm here, and, and I'm the pastor. And uh, as I told someone the other day, I'm, my goal tonight is to lay down a bunt. Okay, I'm the leadoff. And in baseball, sometimes you want someone to lay down a bunt and get on base so that the big guy can get up and hit it later. And uh, <laughs> I was talking about Marty Jackman. I wasn't, so... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but so we're glad that you're here Isaiah chapter 55 if you would and are able this evening I invite you to stand with me in reverence to God's word from this amazing passage Isaiah writing here says come everyone who thirsts come to the waters and he who has no money come buy and eat Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him 
and our God, for He will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in that thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. You may be seated. I hope this evening the Lord will add to the reading and the hearing of His Word. I want to propose to you this evening that this text is a wonderful recipe for revival. It is a wonderful recipe for us because it is not a 12-step plan by which we can follow and somehow generate man-made interest in the things that are not of God. It is a recipe for revival because it centers on God and His riches toward His people. It gives us hope because it shows us that we are incapable in and of ourselves of bringing forth the blessing and the joy and the gracious gifts of God. And I'm really glad that he makes that point because we do a really lousy job of making those things happen in and of ourselves. He starts out in verse 1, verses 1 through 3, and he gives an invitation to revival, an invitation to be revived by God. He says, come. Come, everyone who is thirsty. I don't know about you, but that seems like it's about everyone. Everybody's been thirsty. The richest of rich have been thirsty. The poorest of poor have been thirsty. Everyone, he says, come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters. He invites them in. He says, he who has no money, let him come and buy and eat. You have no money. You have nothing. Come, buy and eat. God invites his people to be revived. He says there further in verse 1, come by without money. God says, you have nothing to offer to me. You have nothing that I want, nothing that I need, but come. You've got no money, but come and buy. He, he, not only he doesn't stop there. He says, without money and without price. He says, not only is there nothing with which you can offer, but there is nothing that you have that would matter. There's nothing that you could give that would have any benefit. 
If you had all the money in the world, the thing that God is offering you would still be too valuable for you to buy. The richest person who has ever lived could not exchange all of his riches for a moment of God's blessing. And yet, even though that is the case, even though we have nothing, he says, come. He asks a question in verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Why is it that we so often try to manufacture things that do not matter? We try to make something happen. We, we made really nice signs for this weekend, and we, we put them all up in the community. But that doesn't make people come. It doesn't, just because we have this event doesn't mean that God will send us revival if we think that it is this event that will cause that to happen. If we think that our increased church attendance will, will cause God to send His blessings, we are sadly mistaken. Because He calls us to come. Come with nothing. Come with no presuppositions. Come with nothing. And come and drink. So often we labor for things which do not matter, the things that really do not satisfy. We invest our time and efforts in those things, and, and in the end what God is saying is they, they don't matter. They're a waste. It's like going into the store and spending our money on moldy bread that we could never eat. He replaces these things that we try with something different. He, he talks about thirst in verse 1, and in verse 2 he talks about listening. Thirst, coming to the waters, is replaced by listening to Him, eating what is good, delighting in these rich foods. God has offered them what they could not buy. He has offered them the ability to come into His presence, to hear His Word, and to consume it. Other places in Scripture, we, we are told by God to eat His Word, to devour it, to allow it to satisfy us. Not to worry about all the other things going on, not to worry about the world around us and the chaos around us. One of the beautiful things about a weekend like this is that we can hone in our focus on God. A million other places you could have been tonight, but you came tonight to dwell on the things of God. That's what setting aside the things that don't matter and consuming His Word does for us. He says in verse 3, Incline your ear and come to Me here that your soul may live. How interesting. He has talked about thirst which can kill our physical bodies. He has talked about hunger, which again can kill our physical bodies. But what he says is, put those things aside. Put aside the things that don't matter, because what will cause you to live is listening to me. Listening to my word. Come and hear that your soul may live. What does he do? He builds with them an everlasting covenant when they listen. 
God has given them this wonderful invitation to be revived. I think you and I need not take that for granted. I think we mess up when we believe that there is something we are going to do to cause revival to happen. When we believe that there is something that we are going to manufacture, that we're going to spend the time, we're going to craft things so well, we're going to develop a strategy and a plan that will somehow send God's revival. And he says, first, listen to me. If you're familiar with the gospel account of the transfiguration, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. And all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah appear. Moses, the, the law, the, the main character, or one of the main characters of the Old Testament, Elijah, the greatest of all the prophets. And they are standing there talking with Jesus. And God speaks out of heaven, and he says, This is my son. Listen to him. Folks, the first step in revival is to respond to the invitation to listen to God. It seems simple. It seems easy. But so often we get caught up in all these things that don't matter. We try to manufacture revival through our efforts, and all that ever happens is we end up greatly disappointed. Our hearts sink low when we can't make God do the thing that we desire. And yet what he sits back and says is, listen to me. He gives the invitation in verses 1 through 3. Now, look with me beginning in verse 4. He gives us the scope of revival. Sometimes I don't believe that we think about revival big enough. We have this idea that revival is about us or about our church or even about our community. And God does revive us and he does revive our churches and he does revive our communities. But the scope of revival is so much greater. Look in verse 5. He says, Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God. And of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. See, for Israel, they are a land-based people. They are focused on a strip of land. If that land wasn't important, they wouldn't still be fighting nearly 3,000 years after this was written. But they do. Each and every day, people are killed over this strip of land. But God tells them in Isaiah, the scope of my revival, the scope of my renewal is going to be so much greater than just what you're seeing. It's going to be so much greater than just this strip of land that you live on and people who lay claim to that land. He says a nation that you do not know will call you. A nation that you did not know shall run to you. When God renews His people, the scope of His revival is all nations. Why do you think as Southern Baptists we put such a heavy emphasis on missions to people in other parts of the world who don't know Him? 
It's because what God is doing is working in the hearts and lives of all nations. He wants to send revival to all people. He wants to renew all people. If we, if we think about revival in the small scope of our own heart, then we'll miss what God is doing. Because I believe that it should revive us when we look across the nations and we see our brothers and sisters who are standing for their faith and dying for their faith. It should prick our hearts to see what God is doing in their lives. If you want to see revival, go and look at the church in place where God is moving, the church is expanding, and people are suffering for their faith. Why is that? It's because God is offering His revival to all nations. But He doesn't stop there. Look look at the next verse. He he talks about, in verse 6, that the scope of revival is to also all sinners. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Look at verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his thoughts and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Not only does God send revival and want to send revival to all people, but he, he wants to do so for all sinners. He doesn't want to just send revival to us who who seem to have it all together. He doesn't want to just send revival to we who have have crafted out a, a pretty good morality. Jesus spent his time with the lowest in his society. He spent time with those who were most affected by sin whose sin had dealt most harshly with. That's where Jesus went, and that's because God is sending revival and renewal to all sinners. See, our God's grace is so good. It is so big. It is so wide and deep that there is no one who is outside of God's love. There is no one who has went so far that they can't be brought back through the message of the gospel. If we want to have revival, if we want our hearts changed by Christ's message, we will realize that God is looking to save sinners. And not just the sinners that we can clean up easily, but the sinners who God has to work a great miracle. The scope is all nations. The scope is all sinners. And God's scope is not ours. And I am so thankful for this in verses 8 and 9. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. And that is awfully easy to see. But he's saying this in light of his desire to renew all nations and all sinners. Because see, you and I, we would not have that view. Look how hard it is for us to have that view when we have been changed by Christ. Look how hard it is for us to love the nations and to love sinners. Look how difficult it is in our hearts for us to forgive and love those who need it most. So it is easy for God to say, your ways are not my ways. And your thoughts 
are not my fault. You and I would go about it a different way. You and I would choose a different path. Going all the way back to Christ, you and I would not give our son to die for the world. You and I would not have made that sacrifice. It might be easy to say we would when we look at the people around us who we love, but what about the people who are far off that we hate? There's no way we would say that we would give our son to die in their place. But aren't you thankful that God said, your ways are not mine, and my thoughts are not yours. We are not the same in verse 9, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God sees much further than we do. He understands much further than we do. He knows what is going to happen. He has seen it. He has been there. He is crafting out His will and His plan for the world. He's making it happen each and every day. Even to the point where God knows what we will all say this weekend. And He is crafting it to be exactly what we all need to hear. God is working so that the words that are spoken will change the hearts of the people who listen. Not because I say them. Not because Mark Harris says them. But because God, God cares about the nations. God cares about sinners. And He works so that people are reached with the gospel of Christ. And friends, if we want to be revived, our hearts will be turned toward being a part of what God is doing. Having our hearts led by His message and His purpose so that we can reach these people with the gospel. So what is the foundation? He's invited us to revival. He's shown us what it looks like. What undergirds God sending revival? Verses 10 and 11, it's very clear, it is His Word. He gives this great analogy. The rain and the snow fall. And it is so good that when they fall and hit the ground, they don't immediately turn and go right back up. We kind of need the rain, right? Now it seemed like for the last few months we have lived in Seattle. Didn't know I'd moved to Seattle when I came to Burke County, but apparently that's what it's been like. But don't we need that? Because when the rain falls and when the snow falls, it causes something to happen. It comes for a purpose. It works itself through the dirt. The rain falls and covers the earth. And when it does, seeds begin to grow. When it does, how interesting, he says it helps both the sower, the starting point, and the eater, the ending point. Everything is affected by the rain. The farmer is able to plant, the crops are able to grow. He is able to live by selling them, and you and I are able to buy them and live. Animals eat them, and we eat them. Unless you're a vegetarian, and we'll talk about that later. You eat the animals, and then we live. Some of us shoot them first and then eat them. And it's a wonderful cycle. 
It does keep us alive. And he says, guess what? My word is the same way. He says, when my word, so verse 11, shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return empty. When God's word falls on us, it will accomplish all that he gives for it to do. It shall succeed in the thing in which he sends it. Friends, if we try to have revival outside of God's word, we have nothing. We have nothing which to stand on. We have nothing to be revived about. It might generate happiness. It might generate some type of manufactured fake joy. Our church attendance might grow. There are plenty of big churches that don't live in God's Word. They're well attended. People give. People get excited. People might even do good things. But friends, that is not revival. Revival is you and I listening to the Word of God and it changing our hearts, it giving us direction, it leading, leading us to where we should go. God sets the foundation for revival because it doesn't return empty. If you and I get up and we've, as a church, been going through the book of Galatians, if you and I get up and give some other gospel it may very well return empty as a matter of fact my prayer is that when a false gospel is proclaimed it always comes back empty that it delivers no one over to the death that Paul talks about in the law but when we dwell on God's word we always have success see I think sometimes you and I believe that revival has to be this state. And it's almost like something that it turns on and then it turns off. That God's upstairs somewhere with a spigot and He's playing games with us. He turns it on sometimes and we, we've got revival and then He turns it off. He might do it because we feel like we're being sinful and sometimes we don't know why He would do it. I think it's because sometimes we have the wrong concept of what revival is. God revives His people's heart when they dwell on His Word. When they focus on who He is and what He has done in Christ. Giving us new life through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. When we focus on that, how can we help but be revived? How can we help but show the joy and love that are in our heart when the Spirit dwells there and leads us? We can't manufacture revival. But when God has called us to Himself, when God has given us new life in Christ, there is nothing to keep us from having revival. There is nothing that prevents it. Those people in history past who have experienced great awakening, when they have seen scores and scores of people saved, it wasn't because somehow in that time God decided to send His Spirit for the first time in a long time. It's because they got serious about the Word of God. They proclaimed the Word of God and lives were changed. And folks, that's what it takes. It's not something else. 
It's not something that we have to hope will happen. It's not something that has to come along only on a certain time that God has scheduled, but rather it is when we get into His Word and His Word directs us. I promise you, if we do that, God sends revival. I promise you it will work. Because throughout history, those who have got into this book, who have got into God's Word, their hearts have been revived. So what's it look like? Look with me in verse 12. What are the results of revival in the Word? He says, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth in singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign. What are the results of revival? We, we go forth in joy. We, we're led forth in peace. We just finished Galatians last Sunday morning. There are two fruits of the Spirit right there. There are two evidences of the Spirit at work in our life. There are joy and peace present right there. God hasn't changed from Isaiah to Galatians. He hasn't done something differently right here. God is sending joy and peace to His people. Imagine this. The mountains are falling down and singing. Trees have somehow developed hands and are clapping. God changes things when He sends revival. Go back and think about the rain and the snow, when it falls, when it hits the ground, and it seeps into the ground and it, it goes into roots, the water and the snow, it's not really, it doesn't really care where it goes. Like, water doesn't have a mind of its own. I mean, a lot of us, I mean, I actually have a really, really nice yard, so I'm not a good example of this, but some of you have really, really bad yards. And they're really, really full of weeds. And the rain, it falls on the just and the unjust, right? It falls on the grass and the weeds all the same. But when the word falls, all of a sudden the thorns are replaced by great and beautiful trees. All of a sudden the briars are replaced by great and beautiful trees. See, when God sends His word and it it does everything that He intends. It accomplishes everything that He wants. It doesn't go and bring forth junk. It doesn't go and grow up weeds and briars. What it does is it grows up great and mighty trees. It does something good. It does exactly what God intends. When we see revival, then what we'll see is we'll see our hearts change. We'll see our church changed. We'll see our community radically altered. We'll see our nation transformed into something much greater than it is today. We will see the nations revived. 
we will see sinners revived. When God's Word is planted into our hearts, when it is on our lips, when we study it and focus on it and dwell on it, God sends us revival. It's not coming any other way. We're not going to just make it happen. We are intentionally going to have to get into His Word and dig out what God has said and live by it and dwell on it and let it lead us. When we do that, friends, we will be revived. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, You are so wonderful. God, you have called us to come. To come and to drink when we are thirsty. To come and to eat when we are hungry. God, you have called us to live in your word. And God, when we do, you will send revival. You will renew our hearts. You will renew our minds, God. You will change our church and our community. This world will come to know you when we dwell on your word. God, sinners will be saved. Lives will be changed and we will be revived. God, help us. Help us to consume your word. Help us to live in it, God. Let it speak to our heart. Let it change us. Transform our heart in Christ. Lord God, we want to be revived. God, I pray that you do that in our hearts, beginning today. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.
pray together. Father God, that is our desire today, that we would be more like you. Father, would, would we forget about what's been in our past, learn from it maybe, but don't let us have our past to shackle us for our future and for our today. God, we love you. We thank you for being so good to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you. Psalm 65 tells us, There will be silence before you, and praise in Zion, O God. And to you the vow will be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all men come. Iniquities prevail against me, and, our, and as for our transgressions, you forgive them. How blessed is the one you choose, and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. By awesome deeds you answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation. You who are the trust of all the ends of the earth and of the fatherless sea, who establishes the mountains by his strength, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas and the roaring of the waves, and the tumult of your people. They who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs. You make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. Well, I want to uh, introduce our next speaker. Uh, Dr. Mark Harris is pastor of First Baptist Church in Charlotte and also president of the Baptist State Convention of North Carolina. Uh, you, as some of you have already commented, may have seen him on television uh, over the last uh, 18 months, couple years. Uh, he led in North Carolina uh, the marriage amendment that was voted on uh, last, um, uh, last May, and, uh, and that passed, and he was a great leader on that. Uh, Dr. Harris is one of those uh, people that if you're involved in Baptist life at all like I am going to conventions and things like that you you see him on the stage and uh, you hear him speak uh, and there's a tendency I think for for us sometimes to think about when someone pastors a really big church to think about them being distant uh, think about them um, you know being someone up in an office somewhere and that sort of thing but as I've become more involved and got to uh, really see Dr. Harris's heart uh, see his passion to uh, win people with the gospel, um, see his passion for the churches of this state, um, that's kind of went away for me uh, because you know, when you're in meetings with folks and you see, uh, and trust me, Baptist meetings aren't always that pleasant, uh, but you see their, their heart as a pastor and a leader, uh, it's very impressive. And that's the reason I wanted to ask him to come uh, tonight. Uh, not just because he pastors a big church or because he leads our state convention, but because I've seen his heart, his heart for people. And uh, that's what I wanted him to come and share tonight. And so, Dr. Harris, you come and preach for us. Thank you. Well, thank you, Brother Michael. I'll tell you what, um, 
it's been a blessing for me to be here already and uh, to hear the message as uh, Brother Michael just uh, challenged us and, and really laid a foundation for, uh, for this church and for this community uh, for what God could do this weekend. I'll tell you, I look at the, the lineup and I feel kind of like the, the mule at the Kentucky Derby. I'm just honored to be here and uh, in the midst of all of this and uh, hearing Brother Michael and I know uh, Brother Marty Jackman is coming and I also know that, uh, that that was more than a bunt, my brother. I believe he got at least a double or a triple uh, already this evening as he uh, blessed us by, again, just reminding us of where true revival is established. And uh, it is established by God. And it will be established through His Word. And uh, it will make a phenomenal, phenomenal impact. And I, I thank you for just sharing that tonight, brother. And let me just say again, uh, greetings to you from uh, First Baptist Church, Charlotte. And greetings on behalf of the Baptist State Convention of North Carolina. And it's certainly a pleasure to be able to share with you and, and uh, to work alongside you to make a difference in the state of North Carolina and uh, throughout America and around the world where uh, all of us as Southern Baptist and North Carolina Baptist are working together to truly seek to uh, carry the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. So uh, thank you for all that you're doing and, and for the opportunity of coming and, and sharing here uh, with, with you tonight. I want to ask you to take your Bibles, if you will, and I want you to turn to the book of Jeremiah. Uh, we started tonight in Isaiah, and you don't have to go far to find your way over to Jeremiah. And um, I guess that's going to leave Brother Marty tomorrow night preaching through Lamentations. I hope so. And I hope you'll tell him that, that you're expecting a message on Lamentations tomorrow evening. But I want to share with you for a few moments there in Jeremiah chapter 8. Before, before we get there, I want to tell you the burden that God's laid on my heart tonight for, for this meeting of, of this theme of awake. And how important it is for us to awaken as a nation how important it is for us to awaken as believers because we are seeing things happen in our nation and we are seeing things happen in our communities that many of us would have never dreamed even some 10 20 40 years ago in fact not long ago I learned something that I had never understood I was trying to to just sort of trace back some of the things that have, have happened in our country and some of the steps that we have taken and to seem to move further and further away from God. And, and I ran across something interesting that I had never discovered before, and that is something that happened on July 2nd, 1954, in this country that few Americans understand. And not only do they not understand what happened on July 2nd, 1954, but they haven't understood the impact that it had that greatly changed the pulpits of our nation and I believe have greatly changed the generation in which we've lived. What happened on July 2nd, 1954, it changed the scope of America. Well, it's interesting because it really didn't seem to happen in North Carolina, and yet we got affected. 
You see, back in 1954, there was a, a Senate race that was taking place in the great state of Texas. And in that race was Lyndon B. Johnson, the United States Senator from Texas. And he was running against someone that no one had ever really heard of, a young state senator out of the state senate of Texas. And it was supposed to be a slam dunk for Senator Johnson. All except for two men who determined that they didn't want Lyndon Baines Johnson back in the United States Senate. One of those men was an oil man by the name of Hunt that you might have heard of. Another was a publisher in that time known as Gannett that you might have heard of. And those two men working together began to spread the word throughout Texas that Lyndon Johnson was soft on communism. And in 1954, with the rage of McCarthyism that was happening around the country, suddenly Lyndon Baines Johnson saw the polls that had him way up here begin to shift, and suddenly this no-name young senator from the state legislature in Texas was evening things out. Well, if you know much about Lyndon Johnson in history, you know that that wouldn't sit very well with him. Lyndon Johnson got on a plane and he flew back to Washington. He walked onto the floor of the Senate on July 2nd, 1954, where the United States Senate was simply debating a tax overhaul bill, a tax bill, to overhaul the tax system in 1954. Lyndon Baines Johnson offered an amendment that day on the floor of the United States Senate, and his amendment basically said this. It would forbid any 5013C nonprofit organization from speaking for or against or writing for or against any political candidate or political party in this nation. And that day, on July 2nd, 1954, without any hearings that would have revealed what that would do to First Amendment rights, without any conversation and discussion what that would do to the pulpits of our nation, without any conversation, that amendment was passed to that bill. And whereas for the first 166 years of this nation, pastors and preachers and churches across this land stood firm on the Word of God, would call out individual leaders for the positions that they took, would help inform and educate and share with their parishioners the stands and the issues of their day. And suddenly, with that one vote, a cloud began to be placed over the pulpits of this nation. For some reason, people began to develop the mythical idea that pastors somehow came to an agreement that they would not speak on policy issues or political candidates and in exchange for their silence that the churches of this nation would remain tax-exempt. That was the myth that began to spread across the land. But ladies and gentlemen, let me be very clear with you tonight. Churches being tax-exempt was developed in the minds of our founding fathers, not some political hacks in Washington, D.C. 
You see, while the Johnson Amendment in 1954 told churches and told pastors that they could no longer speak for or against, which took away their First Amendment rights, the pulpits and the pastors, for the most part of this nation, have stood paralyzed. You want to know what's interesting? That was nearly 59 years ago. And in 59 years, may I tell you tonight, that not one single church has lost its tax-exempt status because of that amendment. Not one single case has been taken to the courts. Oh, it's not because folks haven't tried. You see, there stands today attorneys across this nation who believe in the Constitution, who believe in the Word of God first and foremost, and are waiting and hoping, just praying, that maybe the IRS will take a church to court where it will work its way all the way up, and once and for all, that Johnson Amendment will be ruled as it should have been ruled, unconstitutional, but it's never been challenged because the IRS refuses to enforce it. In 2008, it was, I believe, 33 pastors who stood in their pulpits on what was called Pulpit Freedom Sunday and delivered a message naming issues and naming candidates. They took that sermon and they mailed it to the IRS. You know what the response was? They all got a letter from the Internal Revenue Service saying, thank you for your message. In 2009, 84 pastors took the plunge, preached a message from the Word of God on the issues of our day, called out candidates, mailed their sermons to the IRS and said, here it is. You know what they got? A letter from the Internal Revenue Service saying thank you for your sermon. In 2010, it grew to 100 pastors. In 2011, 539. Last year, in these United States, on what was called Pulpit Freedom Sunday, over 1,500 pastors took to their pulpits in this country and, and proclaimed, thus saith the Lord God, and shared the truth and then mailed that sermon to the IRS. And just like before, they all got letters that said, thank you for your sermon. I told someone, I said, if nothing else happens, whoever's having to listen to all those sermons at the Internal Revenue Service may be getting saved. That may be the first pocket of revival that we begin to see in our nation. You say, Mark, what's your point? My point is that when the revival that your pastor shared about tonight begins to happen. And those results that he described begin to take place. You and I are going to find ourselves and we're going to find our culture and we're going to find our nation drawing closer to God than we've ever been before. If I were to ask you tonight, are we closer to God today 
than we were yesterday as a nation, what would we say? If I were to ask you tonight, are there more signs of righteousness and the righteousness of God in our nation today than there was 10 years ago, 30 years ago, even 50 years ago, what would we say? Well, of course, we would all say no. And that's an easy one to answer. Why? Because 50 years ago, we weren't taking the lives of innocent children in their mother's womb. 50 years ago, we weren't even considering that the citizens of this state and other states would have to vote on whether marriage was between a man and a woman. Come on now. 50 years ago, we would have never seen a federal government that spent and spent and spent till there's $17 trillion of debt that we want to pass on to our children and our grandchildren. 50 years ago, we weren't telling high school students they couldn't pray at graduation. And we weren't telling students they couldn't even write a verse on a sign for a pep rally. So let me ask you, if it was 59 years ago, since July 2nd, 1954, and 50 years ago we weren't experiencing those things that we're experiencing tonight, well, as Dr. Phil would ask, how's that working out for you? How's that working for you? I would say it's not working very well. I would say that since our pulpits have been paralyzed to speak freely on the issues and the leaders of our day, we have seen changes that have been destructive. Now don't get me wrong, I think there are areas that we have seen some good change in the last 50 years, particularly in the area of race relations. I mean, listen, we have seen welcome and needed change. Segregation was ended in the last 50 years. Civil rights were recognized. And Dr. King's dream of men and women being judged not for the color of their skin, but for the content of their character has made great strides. And desperately we needed that. But all in all, I think everyone here would agree that we would have to admit in our nation there's not a closer relationship to God today than we had in previous generations. Which brings me to Jeremiah chapter 8. Jeremiah chapter 8, including verse 4, begins to set the stage for something that you and I need to see tonight. O.S. Hawkins, president of Gadstone Financial Services, pointed out that our generation... Our generation far too often lives by the what questions of society rather than the why questions of society. There's a reason for that because answering the what questions is a lot easier than getting to the nitty-gritty of the why questions. For instance, if you look at the issue of teen pregnancy, we don't want to ask why is there 
teen pregnancy. We don't want to ask why is there a problem that's developed teen pregnancy, but we would rather ask questions like what? What are we going to do about it? And so we decide it's easy to answer the what question. We'll just distribute condoms in public high schools. That should solve the problem. But we don't ask the why question that gets down to the foundational root of where things have gone desperately wrong. Well, the prophet Jeremiah lived in a day, I believe, very similar to ours. You say, how so, Brother Mark? Well, the people of God, the nation of Israel, had been blessed. They had prospered. Just as you and I have been blessed. Just as you and I have prospered, perhaps beyond anything you ever hoped or imagined. And yet, Israel had forgotten their God. Just as you and I tonight live in an America that has forgotten her God. Now as you read the book of Jeremiah, you find a man of God that is so burdened, so broken hearted, and it was all so much so that he became known as the weeping prophet. But let me tell you something about Jeremiah. As you and I discover here in chapter 8, he wasn't into the what questions. No. Jeremiah was all about asking the hard questions. He was all about asking why. And tonight, I want to show you four of the most amazing why questions that I've ever seen that spoke to the day in Jeremiah's time and so readily speak to your day and my day that we're living in in 2013 America. You notice he says in verse 4, Moreover, you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Will they, not ri- will they fall and not rise? Will one turn away and not return? All right, get your pens ready. Here's question number one in verse 5. Here's the first hard why question Jeremiah raises. Why has this people slidden back? Jerusalem in a perpetual backsliding. Would you underline verse 5? Because right there you find the question that all of us need to be asking each other. You find the question that needs to be asked to the American public tonight. You're finding the question that needs to be shouted from the mountaintops. The question that needs to be tossed out to our generation. Why has this people slidden back? Why is there a perpetual backsliding? Well, Jeremiah, speaking the word of God, gives the upfront simple answers. You see them? Here they are. They hold fast to deceit. 
and they refuse to return. There it is. That's amazing. Because as miserable as they had become, and by the way, the children of Israel were miserable at this point. Listen, as unhappy as they were, as as dissatisfied as they were, as unfulfilled as they felt, and and, and is, is that not where so many in our nation are living tonight? Let's just be honest. The misery level pretty high in our culture this evening. The number of unhappy people, it's on the way up. The number of people I encounter in Charlotte that are dissatisfied, on the way up. The number of people I encounter every day that seem unfulfilled, on the way up. But get this. No matter how miserable, unhappy, dissatisfied, and unfulfilled they were, they weren't yet desperate enough to face the realities and turn back. They weren't desperate enough. As a young pastor in the early 1990s, when I was at Center Grove in Clemens, I remember going to a Southern Baptist convention in Houston, Texas, and and, uh, Dr. Ed Young was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I remember Ed Young giving an address there at that convention, and he made a statement that I'll never forget as long as I live. I still hear it ringing in my ears today. Dr. Young said, if we're going to see revival, if we're going to see spiritual awakening ever come to America, it will not be through prayer. When he said that, you could almost have heard a unanimous, (gasps) as all the air was sucked out of the Houston Convention Center. And then he finished his thought. If we're ever going to see spiritual awakening and real revival come to our nation again, it will not be through prayer, but it will be through desperation. For it will not be until a man or a woman get desperate enough that they begin to pray the way God calls them to pray, that they will ever see spiritual awakening and spiritual revival. We see the very same thing right here with Israel. They're miserable, they're dissatisfied, but they're not desperate enough. Listen, don't get me wrong, they still had some spiritual craving in their life, but their spiritual nature couldn't compete with the lust of the flesh. Their spiritual nature couldn't compete with the lust of the eyes. Their spiritual nature couldn't compete with the pride of life. In fact, if you look at verse 6 and 7, the, the prophet Jeremiah, look, he is, he is looking and listening for the slightest sign of repentance. He says, I listened and heard, but they do not speak aright. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, what have I done? Everyone turned to his own course as the horse rushes into the battle. 
Even the stork in the heavens knows her appointed times. And the turtle dove, the swift, and the swallow observe the time of their coming. Get this, last sentence of verse 7. But my people do not know the judgment of the Lord. Jeremiah says, I listened and I looked everywhere. I was listening for the the, the slightest sign of repentance. I'm even calling for it, but no one's taking notice. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. The most disheartening part of this particular verse is the spirit God had fled. The spirit of God had fled. But the people had just enough religion and just enough religious activity and just enough religious practices that they didn't even recognize that the Spirit had fled. Are you okay tonight? There was no longer power in the people of God. And frankly, they really weren't even inclined to seek better anymore. They had reached a point that they were just living life on a lower plane and had become very satisfied at that place. For the sake of time tonight, I'm not going to read verse 8 through 13, but I'll just challenge you sometime tonight before you go to bed, if you'll read verse 8 through 13, all it is doing is just describing the culture of a people who once knew the hand of God's blessing and prosperity, but they turned their backs on Him. You know the question that you and I need to be asking tonight of ourselves and the question that we need to be asking the American public is simply this. Are we desperate enough? Are are, are we desperate enough? Are we desperate enough? You see, the second why question that that Jeremiah asked, I think, is a question that you find in verse 14. You might underline it in your Bible. It's, it's, it's another why question. And, and, and I think it's the question that has to be asked to the pew in America. That's where you're sitting tonight. The people that are sitting in our pews all across our landscape need to answer the question found in verse 14. Here's what it says. Why? Do we sit still? Why do we sit still? Assemble yourselves. 
and let us enter the fortified cities and let us be silent there for the Lord our God has put us to silence and given us water of gall to drink because we have sinned against the Lord do you see what Jeremiah is saying in verse 14 he's saying why do we sit still He's asking you in in, in the pews. He's saying, let's gather together. Let's assemble ourselves knowing that the judgment of God is upon us. And let's come in silence before the Lord. Last time I checked the church, silence is the last thing we want in our lives. Go to most of our homes We've got to have a television or a radio going in every room. Why? Because silence is dangerous. We don't like silence. And yet we find here that he is saying that let us enter the fortified cities. Let us be silent there for the Lord our God has put us to silence. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not a time This is not a time for the rationalizations of our sin. This is not the time for us to come together and try to make excuses for our sin. This is the time for the people in the pew not to come together and try to explain our sin, to somehow blame it on something our daddy did to us or blame it on something our mamas did or didn't do or to blame it on something our grandparents or our great-grandparents this is not a time that you and I are to somehow come with our excuses and come with our explanations no 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 this is a time where we come together standing on our belief in the faith in Christ that we claim standing on our belief in the truth of God's Word that we claim and listen it is not a time to demand anything from God no see most of our prayer meetings in America are not much different from the average Christmas wish list No, not now. Not in this day. It's not a time to demand anything from God. But it's a time when in silence you and I should just fall before Him broken, seeking His mercy. Jeremiah said, why, oh, oh, why do you just sit still in those chairs? Why, oh, why are we just sitting still in the pews? It's time to come together in repentance. It's time to come together confessing our sin. It's time to come together and yield our wills and our plans to his will and his plan. See, can can I ask you tonight? Those of you that are sitting in the pews of our churches in this country, are we, we, are we willing 
to submit to God's judgment and go ahead and confess that our sin is the cause. That's the question. God's judgment's here. Quit making excuses and rationalizations and trying to explain that it's not. The real question is, will we come before him and submit to that judgment? And confess our sin was what brought it. It's not easy. But it's the only way we'll get our nation to be closer to God today than we were yesterday. Are you willing to do it? There's a third why question real quickly I'll ask you to underline, and it's found down in verse 19. He says in verse 19, Listen, the voice, the cry of the daughter of my people from a far country is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? And then here's the why question in the middle of the verse. Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images? with foreign idols why have they provoked me to anger see this is the question this is the question that would be asked to the to the american leadership the american leaders the american policymakers because it's a question why have they provoked me to anger please hear me tonight the people of god we're still trusting in lying words. Notice it says, with their carved images, with their foreign idols. They were still trusting in liars. They were still trusting in lying words. You say, what do you mean, Brother Mark? Listen, they were still rationalizing that since the temple of Jehovah and the throne of David belonged to them, therefore, they should be safe and secure from the judgment of God. Well, you know what? They were wrong. That's not the case at all. And what I've recognized in our own nation is while I am extremely grateful for our founding fathers and while I am extremely grateful for our founding documents which clearly acknowledge Almighty God and clearly acknowledge our dependence on Almighty God and as you read the prayers of people like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln it is obvious that there was a faith and a dependence on God to move in this nation and while I am grateful for that ladies and gentlemen just because we had a founding of this nation that received the hand of God and the blessings of God our generation has to stand on its own two 
feet. Too many leaders and too many people are allowing our leaders to somehow live on our past. And we are failing to recognize that we are accountable for what happens in our generation. Our leaders are accountable for what happens in our generation. That's why it's important to know what will our leaders do on the issue of the sanctity of human life. What will our leaders do when it comes to the issue of the sanctity of biblical marriage? What will our leaders do when it comes to the issue of national debt? What will our leaders do when it comes to preserving religious freedom in this country so we'll continue to be able to meet on a Friday night in this community without fear of having this meeting shut down those decisions are critical to whether God's hand of blessing will be upon this nation or whether God removes his hand and that's why God asked why have they provoked me to this anger Why have they provoked me? Just because our founding fathers sought God's power. You and I in our generation cannot coast along somehow thinking we're secure because of that godliness back then that escapes, will cause us to escape the judgment of God in 2013 that's what Jeremiah is saying and then there's one last question he asks and I'm done it's down in verse 22 you'll see at the last verse of that chapter he said is there no balm in Gilead is there no physician there and here's a question interesting I've heard this question a lot over the last five years on every cable network in this country why then is there no recovery why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people how many of you have heard that question asked sometime in the last five years on the news or in the newspaper or somewhere why is there no recovery can I see a show of hands how many people have heard folks in this country asking about the recovery where's the recovery why is there no recovery when's the recovery coming <laughs> Jeremiah asked that question thousands of years ago to the people of God You see, there were those in Jeremiah's day who treated the issues of, of sin before God and the miseries of the nation as just trivial matters. Didn't really matter. Live and let live. Everybody do your own thing, just don't hurt anybody. In fact, he gives an example of it in verse 11. I, I didn't read verse 8 through 13. I challenged you to do that later, but I will call your attention to verse 11 because it's a great example of, of what happened in this time. 
It says, for they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people. Get this, slightly. Or another word used there is superficially. Well, how did they heal her hurt superficially? Well, here's how. Saying peace. Peace. When there is no peace. You know what that means in modern language? It's spelled T-O-L-E-R-A-N-C-E. Tolerance. Tolerance. Now listen, we should respect other people. We should show them the love of Christ. We should show them the love of an eternal God. But ladies and gentlemen, if you believe in the God of Scripture, then you understand that love, real love, cannot turn a blind eye to the reality of sin without calling it what it is confronting it for what it is and lovingly sharing truth for what it is. We're watching a movement in this nation that is years, really decades, decades old by a homosexual agenda in this country that has continued to push further and further and further till we now have a generation of young people that believe anybody that doesn't just accept a homosexual lifestyle as just like any other lifestyle and certainly would never call it sinful. A younger generation says if you believe that it is sinful or whatever call it sin then you're a bigot you don't love people you don't care about people we've turned everything upside down because the truth is the person who just pats somebody living in open, unconfessed, blatant sin and pats them on the back and says, peace, peace. When there is no peace, you don't love that person. You don't care if they die in their sin and spend eternity in a devil's hell. You say, well, Mark, I just, I just don't think Jesus would, would operate. Let me tell you how Jesus operated now that you bring that up. When Jesus met the woman at the well, can I take you there for just a minute? And he's talking to her about living water. He's meeting her right where she is. They're having this conversation. And the woman, and that's, by the way, found over there in the Gospel of John chapter 4. And, and he's talking to her. 
back and forth and they're having conversation he's got her convinced finally that he knows about some living water and she's thinking dude I do not want to keep coming down that mountain filling this pot up and carrying it on my head back up that mountain if he he's just said he can give me some water that I will never thirst again give me some of that water that's what she said that was her line give me that water I've often said every Baptist preacher in America would have whipped out a membership card, handed it to her, and said, if you'll sign right here, we'll get you on the roll and send you a newsletter this week. She was right there. Jesus had her right there. You know what his next line was? Or shall I remind you? He said, go get your husband. Well, she just sort of recoiled back. My husband. She said, I, I don't have a husband. He said, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the dude you're shacking up with now ain't your husband. Now, that's Mark's paraphrase, but I'm just telling you, that's what it says in the original Greek. He said, you speak truth. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with is not your husband. Now, you know what modern America would say? Why did he have to go and bring that up? Why? I mean, he had her on that living water thing. He, he could have brought her right to the, the throne of salvation right then. Why did he have to go bring up all of that trash, all of that dirt, all of that nastiness. I'll tell you why. Because not a single one of us in this room have ever tasted a drop of living water until we first came face to face with our sin. If you joined a church there's lots of people that do this. You joined a church and never came face to face with your sin. I got news for you. You got your name on the church roll, but that's not going to mean a hill of beans when your name's missing in the Lamb's Book of Life. Because only those who repent of their sin, the Bible says, ever really come to know and experience the grace and the fullness of Christ in his salvation Jeremiah in verse 11 of chapter 8 is saying there are people that are treating this sin stuff far too trivial and are saying peace peace where there is no peace but you know what Jeremiah the prophets of God weren't like that no the, the prophets of God were keenly aware of the evil in their time, so much so that the prophet of God, like Jeremiah, took the sins and the sorrow of the people on himself and made them his own. The prophet of God, the preacher of God, was so serious about the powerful responsibility that came with the role of prophet 
That's the reason he asked in the first sentence, is there no balm in Gilead? By the way, you can circle that phrase, balm of Gilead. That is a symbol of the moral healing power. And you know what the great question of verse 22 is in 2013? It's the same as the hard question that was asked to Israel that day. Do the very people the very nation that was blessed of God to show the world the power of redemption have no medicine anymore to cure your own diseases. And do you have no one left to apply the medicines? You see, tonight... The question of the American pulpit. The question to every church in this state and every church in this nation and around the world is are you and I going to preach for popularity? Are we going to preach for political correctness? Are we going to preach for itchy ears? Or are we going to commit to stand in the house of God and proclaim the word of God to the people of God empowered by the spirit of God and be willing to pay the price Whatever it is. A price that has led pastors in Great Britain and pastors in Canada just to our north to be arrested and pay fines and spend time in prison because they preached Romans chapter 1, that homosexuality is a sin and an abomination before God. And because of the laws passed in Great Britain, because of the laws passed in Canada, pastors have gone to prison. Just in case you haven't heard, there have been bills filed in the United States Congress with the very same wording of those very same laws. We just thank God that they haven't made it out of where they were introduced. We've got to have pastors and preachers though Pastors and preachers have got to have men and women in their church that will take it so seriously that they will stand with them. You see, I fear there's not many that are left that are willing to pay the price, whatever it costs. That's why I've always been blessed by knowing enough of U.S. history to know in this great country that it's been pastors, spiritual leaders that were at the founding of this nation. 
Unless you never heard where most of the gunpowder was stored and hidden during the American Revolution, it was in the churches. The pastors hid it there. Many of you here have heard of the midnight ride of Paul Revere, right? You've heard about that? He rode on that horse. He went running, riding through the streets of Boston. You know what he was doing? He was yelling, the British are coming. The British are coming. The British are coming. But what many modern revisionist historians have failed to tell you is where he was headed that night when he was crying, the British are coming. You know where he was going? He was going to the house of his pastor. His pastor's name was Jonas Clark. You know who Paul Revere was going to warn? Pastor Clark. The British are coming. Why would he go to warn his pastor? Because the British are coming. The British are coming. The British are coming to incarcerate you. The British are coming even to execute you. Why would you care about a preacher named Jonas Clark? Check the history. Jonas Clark was one of those preachers who stood in the pulpits in this country when they were colonies and preached unapologetically the importance of freedom for this nation. He was one of the first pastors that stood and cried out for this nation to rise up and break away from Great Britain. Well, what does that have to do with Paul Revere warning him that the British were coming? Just this simple fact that when Jonas Clark was preaching the importance of freedom for this nation, only 30% of the colonists agreed with that position. When Jonas Clark stood to preach about freedom, 70% of the colonists weren't willing to agree to perhaps lay down their lives that freedom would ring. You and I have been blessed to experience religious freedom in this country for all the generations of this nation because of the pulpits in this country that refuse to be silent but stood for truth and for freedom that we would be one nation under God that we could be one nation where we had been given inalienable rights by the hand of our creator that we would be one nation that knew that it was only by the hand of the Almighty that such unbelievable odds would have been overcome. 
See, I believe tonight that there's a deep need for revival in America. But I'm wondering if we're desperate enough. There's a deep need for revival in America. But I'm wondering if you and I are willing to come tonight and get on this altar and demand nothing of God but in silence accept His judgment and confess our sin as the cause. I really wonder tonight if we're willing to hold people accountable and if our nation's leaders will stand on their own two feet for what is right. And I'm wondering if the pulpits like this one and like mine in Charlotte and like others across this land will have the courage to stand whatever it costs us. Until we get the answers to those questions, don't look for revival. Would you bow your heads right where you are? Heads are bowed. Eyes are closed. And I'm just going to ask you right where you are tonight just to stop for just a moment. I'm going to ask the musicians to come and they're going to lead us in just a moment in time of invitation. But you know, more important than what is sung or even said in these next few moments, what's more important is what you and I are going to do with the Word of God that has been placed before us. Your pastor made it clear that any true awakening is going to be grounded and founded in the Word of God. You've read Jeremiah chapter 8 for yourself tonight. You don't even have to take my word for it. You've seen it in black and white. The questions couldn't be any clearer. Why? 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 I wonder if tonight you'd be willing to leave your seat as these musicians begin to sing and just come and get on this old-fashioned altar. Just make an altar right here, all along the front. And begin this meeting tonight. You've got three days here, three nights. And maybe just tonight you'd come and get on this altar to begin this series of meetings and say, God, 
Help me answer those questions. Help me answer those questions in my own life tonight. God, I'm not going to ask you to do anything. I'm just coming to you in silence and in mercy, seeking you. I accept the judgment. My sin is to blame. Father, please bring revival. Please. Would you just quietly stand to your feet right where you are? Father in heaven, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed in worship, we respond to you. We simply respond to you. In Jesus' name I pray. If you'll continue with your heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm going to ask Brother Michael to be right here at the front. If you need someone to pray with you tonight, he'd love nothing more than the opportunity as your pastor to pray with you. But more importantly tonight, I'm just inviting you to get on this altar and seek the face of God. If you've never really given your life to Jesus, I mean never really surrendered to Him, that's where it all has to start. You don't have any answers until you come to Christ and He begins to provide the answers. So would you come? I'm going to be right down here on the altar myself. And as they sing, I'm inviting you to join me.
public or private schools, if you are a student, uh, elementary, middle school, high school, college, would you join me down front and let's pray for our schools this evening. Join me. Well, isn't it good that God speaks to us? And we don't have to, we don't go in this alone. You know, we don't, we don't try to do it ourselves. It's, you look at the religions of the world and they teach that a God somewhere or a bunch of gods somewhere want you to do something. And if you do it, you can find him or her or them or whomever. And our God says, come. He says, come and see what I have for you. He says, come and be revived. He says, come and take the sin that's in your life and cast it upon me. Isn't that so good? I hope God's spoken to you tonight. Uh, I hope that you will uh, come and uh, be with us tomorrow night uh, and to uh, uh, be with us Sunday night. Um, would, you, would you thank Dr. Harris for coming and being with us this evening?
Well, we're going to go, and I hope uh, that God has spoken to you, and I hope that you have listened. Uh, God speaks to us so often, and we, we don't listen to what he says. Uh, let's be obedient. Let's listen to God tonight. Uh, I've asked my dad to close us in prayer, and uh, we'll be dismissed. Most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, thank you for your many blessings, Lord, and forgive us where we failed you, Lord, and, and just revive our hearts, Lord, and as we leave here, when we go out that others might see Jesus in our heart and be drawn to him. These blessings we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.